Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm delighted to share a panel discussion from the 2019 Patients as Partners U.S. Conference on the topic of improving clinical research and trials through effective pharma advocacy partnerships. This discussion is led by Mary Murray, Associate Director of Diversity and Patient Engagement for BMS. She is joined by Ellen Miller-Sonnet of Cancer Care, Kristen Smedley of the Curing Retinal Blindness Foundation, Tiffany Westrick-Robinson of IFAA, and Kerry Yale of Boehringer Ingelheim. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So hi, everybody. I'm Mary Murray. I am not Pam Patel, but Pam sends his regrets. He was uh, unfortunately not able to attend today after all, and he uh, really sends his regrets. But we're going to do a great job anyway so that we can say, Pan, we did it, and thank you for your awesome preparation of this panel. So as everyone's uh, coming up to the stage, I'll, uh, I will sit. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'll sit. If I'll, I don't know what's better. There's no, we, do, we will look odd. I'm going to sit in a minute. But uh, before I sit, since I'm already standing here, uh, let me introduce everybody. So first of all, we're going to go down the row here. First of all, everyone's bios are in there, so I'm not going to read their full bio, but we've got Ellen Miller-Sonnet, who is the Chief Strategy and Policy Officer at Cancer Care. And next to her, we've got Kristen Smedley, who is the President of Curing Retinal Blindness Foundation. And then we've got Carrie Yale, who's the Head of Patient Affairs and Engagement for Boehringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals. So those are our panelists. Oh, and on the phone, we have Tiffany. Oh, my goodness. We do. Oh, we have Yes, you do. <laughs> so this is the only panel where the voice of God will be weighing in. So you really need to take it seriously. That's all. So Tiffany, um, and I'm going to apologize in advance, Tiffany, because everyone can see me squinting. There's literally no light here, and, and, uh, and I have uh, aged, apparently, since this morning. But, uh, <laughs> but Tiffany Westridge-Robertson is the Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Um, and she is also a person diagnosed with several autoimmune arthritis and related um, diseases. So she's an executive, she's an advocate, and she's a patient, and seriously, voice of God. So, uh, so Tiffany, do you want to say hi? We're, they're trying to modulate your volume, so, so, so just say. Oh, a few sure. Words. Yeah, I don't want to be. I don't want to be that godlike. <laughs> is this is this loud enough, or I'm not overpowering anything? That's good, right, everybody? Okay, great. All so, right. thank you, thank you. All right, very good. So, in fact, I think I am just going to stand here because it's easier to sort of see you guys and talk to you guys, if that's okay. So, we're going to start with um, with one question that I'm going to ask all the panelists. Um, but we've been talking so much about patient engagement, and I think with this panel, we're really going to get to some of the how-tos and and where's and when's, and and uh, we've heard a lot about the why. So. For this panel, Ellen, we'll probably start with you. What are the key elements that make for an effective partnership between industry and advocacy groups? If Mark, is Mark Summers still here? Yeah, so you had your, is that what three-wire means, the triangle between industry, advocacy, and sites? Is that three-wire? I, I wish I could say that's what it is. <laughs> All right, well, okay, that's not what it is. But there was definitely a wire between industry and advocacy. 
So what makes a good and effective partnership? Also volume, volume very good for. Thanks. So continuity, right? Continuity, long-term thinking, strategy. How about Kristen? Do you have a perspective on this? So I, I'll just be very brief because I'm going to go into it a little more later. But I think the biggest uh, word for me is is meaningful. That the work is meaningful for both sides, um, and and listening is heavily involved in making the work meaningful. And then, like I said, I'll go into it a little more later. So meaningful reciprocity, that sort of back and forth. I would just add to um, what Kristen and Ellen have said that really starting early um, has been helpful uh, for those of us working now with CAEI because it allows you to establish a relationship that isn't you know, so transactional for a project. And another key element is listening. Um, listening not only to the groups that you work with, but also listening to your colleagues. So in, from the industry side, So thank you, Carrie. I think you raised, you all raised an interesting point, but Carrie really, um, I think you, you show the connection between it's not just sort of an external engagement, right? 
but really the other half of patient engagement is employee engagement, the internal employee engagement at, within industry to, to do something with what we're hearing and to make it work within the systems that we have or advocate for changes to the systems that we have if that's what's needed. Thanks, Carrie, and thanks for reminding us. Tiffany's on the line. <laughs> Tiffany, <laughs> final yes, word. Yes, um, well, uh, I do absolutely agree with everything everyone said, so I'll fill in just a couple um, additional points on I, what I think are key elements for making the effective partnership between advocacy groups and industry, um, the first being uh, the ability to identify and understand the type of advocacy group that you're working with. So are you speaking, you know, we're speaking solely about nonprofits, or I am at this moment. Um, so there are different patient advocacy organizations, and they're primarily led by um, people who represent the patient voice. Um, so they're mostly uh, governed by um, non-patients. Then there's nonprofits led by patients who have been advocates who've decided to become an official entity. And then still others like um, IFAA, where, where, where I represent, we're led by people living with these diseases who bring our professional experiences and business uh, education and research into the mix. So first, identifying who it is you're working with, including the skills and the contributions that they individually bring to the table. So I think that's necessary to assess the scope of what the collaboration will look like. And then the second component to that is like in all collaborations, there really needs to be a benefits barrier assessment early on. Um, I think um, industry in particular, they are limited in the way that they can engage. Uh, they, so they really need to understand that each group, each patient advocacy group, and each disease genre um, that, that they're working with needs to be explored and understood to set up meaningful collaboration that will truly bring value to both parties. Uh, just a quick example, the autoimmune arthritis community is going to have different barriers to engagement than, let's say, uh, the cancer community or our MS community. So the biggest issue is for us, our art community, is patients have a fear of commitment as flares are very predictable. So that would be an example of an industry needing to, to kind of fine-tune their collaborative methods to say, okay, what do we need to talk to that advocacy group so we can understand about how customizing these efforts to, in, in order to, you know, shift the uniqueness per community. So those are kind of the, the two additional things I would add. So thanks. So, I mean, it's almost lessons from community organizing I'm hearing. Really understand who, who you're partnering with and what you are each able to contribute and what your limitations are and how do you build a shared, a shared vision together leveraging your, each of your strengths. Absolutely. Um, okay. I wanted, I, want, I wanted to just ask because I'm not sure I heard it right. So when you talked about, and does anyone mind if I do a follow-up real quickly? Um, you talked about a fear of commitment because in, in your patient community, the flares are unpredictable? And yes. so, okay, 
I didn't. I couldn't hear if you said unpredictable or predictable. So that's yeah. They're, they're so unpredictable. So what te tends to happen in any type of um, collaboration, and if, particularly if you're doing focus groups or even commitment to being in a clinical trial, uh, it, there is some pushback from the patient community for fear of well, what if I can't really commit? What if I can't be there at this time? And that's a re that's a that's a thing that we deal with every single day of our lives. So understanding that is going to change the dynamic of the design protocol. Yes, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm actually going to stay with you. Okay. <laughs> um, because our second question, um, we've talked a little bit about what the elements of a successful collaboration are, can be, but right now, just sort of the point where we are right now, what's not getting done? What don't you see enough of in terms of these um, collaborations from your point of view? Um, in my opinion, I think perhaps the biggest obstacle to increasing partnership value in particular is the continued use of the standard advisory panel. Uh, while that was novel, uh, maybe 10 years ago or may a little bit less, and it does absolutely serve its purpose, it has its place, uh, such as collecting general information, opinions about drug development or marketing, overall clinical trial community concerns perhaps, it's just not taking it far enough. And again, I'm going to go back to the, the dealing with populations of patients, especially those that are very unique in their presentations. So if every person has different unique challenges, then the endpoints also could be different. And that's going to affect the way things need to be designed. So taking it um, past the advisory panel and, and reaching what um, past that, five, that typical 5% of the patients that have a voice at the table. And by no means am, am I suggesting don't utilize patient advocacy. Oh, my good, go yes, definitely. <laughs> but in addition to all the great advocates like we've, that, that are there right now, um, we could all work and combine our forces together to even reach a larger global patient population. So let's think innovatively as how we can make that happen so we can consider the personalization of needs. Um, the, an example, just as a side note, uh, that we've done to participate to address this um, is some of the industry partners that we work with have actually invited myself and other people at IFAA who are also patients to, to participate in these advisory panels. So it's sort of taking the next level of the advisory panel. So we're sitting alongside our fellow patient advocates and patient peers, but then we also have the ability to go back to that industry partner afterward and start to brainstorm on now how can we take this to the next level? What can we do within our community to reach more patients who weren't able to be at this table, who maybe don't live in this country or are too disabled to travel or don't have prior advocacy experience? So utilizing your patient groups to the next level in advisory panels I think needs to happen. And then the second and last issue um, that I really just wanted to point out is the real need for personalization. Um, you know, any good relationship that you, you, you always learn about one another, right? So in this case, it's learning about the other stakeholder group. So the first part of this is that your relationship with the patient organization or a needs to really be customized, which I sort of mentioned in the beginning, because there's not gonna be a one-size-fits-all solution to drug development um, or clinical trial design. And there needs, so there needs to be sort of this customization to meet individual unique 
needs of the patient community. And then along with the personalization, we really can't forget about preparing for precision medicine. Um, clinical trial development and the mechanisms that are being targeted are going to require an entirely different patient market than who we are currently enrolling in trials. So I, I know IFBA is working on this issue with our industry partners, but it needs to be a bigger part of kind of the clinical trial discussion right now. Otherwise, we're going to arrive at precision trials with the same model used for non-precision, and we're going to be working backwards to figure out how to recruit new people, identify new barriers and benefits, et cetera. So it's really something that needs to be considered now. So thank you, Tiffany. I told you mm -hmm. guys, voice of God. When we got an <laughs> awful lot of information here, I'm going to try to summarize it again so that you don't miss uh, any of these key points, but if I miss something, I'm sure we'll circle back to it with the panel. But first of all, she, you know, there's a place for the advisory boards, but it's not far enough, right? And we heard that even this morning from Abby Steele and some of those presentations. You can take what you learned from the advisory board, but you've got to test, you've got to get more refinement, I guess, is what I'm hearing, into the populations um, that will hopefully be uh, participating in the study, benefiting from any uh, potential medicine after the fact. Uh, so advisory board is good, not enough. You need to take it down to the next level to get a wider representation and maybe some venues um, to in, um, engage patients for further inquiry. Um, so it could be focus groups. It could be those things even that, um, that Mark, I'm going to refer to Mark again, was talking about in his presentation, all the things that um, uh, a, a service provider might be able to help with, even through and in cooperation with an advocacy group. Um, personalization, that was the other thing I heard. So coming through to really personalizing the needs down to the individual patient if possible, but at least some subpopulations if you can. And then, by the way, forget all of that. Get ready for, personal, uh, for, for precision medicine. It's going to all be different <laughs> if we're looking at biomarker. Uh, Populations. I didn't mean forget all that. I just meant get ready. You might need to change it exactly. up again once we've got Don't precision medicine. It's okay. So that was um, what I got. And so I know it's not quite our order, but you mentioned endpoints. And I thought, you know, we have an understanding of endpoints and we've had some discussion of it here today, but no one's got a story like Kristen's to tell except Kristen. So, Kristen. What do you hear when you hear endpoints? Well, I, I'm often introduced like that. No one has a life like Kristen Smedley. <laughs> I don't. I've, with uh, two blind kids and one sighted, we have quite the story that we tell. But the one thing I wanted you all to walk away with is this one uh, visual, if you will, as I'm the mom of the blind kids running the patient organization for blindness. In terms of endpoints, in the beginning, a long, long time ago, before the clinical trial came to what it is now for uh, rare eye disease, that what Luxterna is now. Way back in the day, the endpoint was what you all think of when you measure vision and whether a therapy worked to restore vision, the eye chart, right? That is the universal how we assess whether you have vision or not, and it's clear. In my world, though, in the rare eye disease world, in the blindness world, that doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense because the hurdles that the blind community have really, really, I mean, okay, yes, we would love to have 20-20 vision for everybody, but the biggest points are independence and mobility. 
And when that clinical trial design team really started getting embedded in our community and finding out what we really wanted and needed, actually needed, it's mobility and independence wasn't the eye chart. So people, parents way before me started advocating for get rid of that eye chart and instead it became what is now the mobility course and multi-levels of lighting for the mobility course to simulate, if you will, um, nighttime, dusk, early morning, and that has had the hugest impact for lives. Because quite frankly, for me, my two boys who are teens now, if they could navigate their college campus, if they could trick or treat again, those kinds of things would be so much more meaningful in their lives because they're braille readers and they, they, it would set them back to learn print at this point. Braille has come a long way and accessibility has come a long way. So give thought to and talk with your community, your patient community, what is actually meaningful to them, not just what has been the status quo. Let me go now to Carrie, because now we've heard it from the, the advocacy side, and I think really vividly uh, described by both Tiffany and, and Kristen. But what are we um, thinking of, Carrie, on the industry perspective? I gotta read the question, um, which I can't do. I need a flashlight up here, <laughs> honestly. Um, from an industry perspective, there are generally, um, you know, well, what goes into us? There's the decision-making time points. So, so what are the key points in industry that we're thinking about when we're thinking about engaging patients, where it can work, where we can get that internal engagement to really respond? to be brave, to be willing to fail fast, um, 
Thank you. I mean, it really is a collaboration, right, with, with everybody, including regulatory. So, go ahead. Um, I just want to add that a lot of the work uh, I'm doing is around trying to determine what's important to patients and communicate that before treatment decisions are made. So that if a patient is a piano player, for example, the choice of chemotherapy might be different uh, than if they were less concerned with neuropathy. Uh, some patients may be willing to sacrifice a few points on a survival curve in order to be able to pick their kids up after school every day or uh, to you know, avoid lymphedema, for example. Um, but a lot of times this information isn't collected and uh, it isn't until after the patient has been through treatment that all of a sudden the consequences of that treatment really wreak havoc in their lives, and um, that's so unfortunate. And I'm thinking, I'm sort of thinking, as in the context of this conversation, that with more and more treatment choices, there are more options for patients to uh, for for treatment plans to be different. And is there a way that we can help look at the treatment? in a more holistic sense uh, in terms of, of the impact of a treatment on somebody's quality of life and help support the quality of life aspects of the patient experience. So you all may be providing a clinical treatment and the physician may be providing a clinical treatment, but what about quality of life and how can we as a community support the way the patient is living uh, so that they can live until this cancer or whatever is gone. Um, a third of cancer patients, for example, don't have a care partner. Uh, a third of them don't have someone going to appointments with them. Well, that could have a dramatic impact on the choice of treatment. So if we can kind of build a, a, a almost a you know, a big bubble around a patient that allows them to live their life while they're a patient. Uh, we'd be providing health care with them instead of at them. Uh, and, you know, patients are living longer and longer and longer with these illnesses. Um, we, we really ought to sort of broaden the way we view the treatment spectrum, I think. So thank you, Ellen, because I think you repeated in, again, really nice terms, what personalization means, right? And, and also to help us think about not just endpoints, but maybe exploratory endpoints. That's a challenge, though, in industry, because you can't have too many exploratory endpoints end without creating additional burdens. So there's tension there. But also, you know, quality of life, if we're thinking about quality of life and experience during the course of the trial itself, and then those uh, quality of life that might extend beyond uh, to, to people being treated with the actual medication or extend beyond participation in the trial. You know, 
we have to think about our whole trial as well. It's not just sort of the, the drug that we're testing, but all of those ancillary services that we heard a lot about today as well, those all go to the experience and might give us a more flexible opportunity to provide some of that personalization that will be empowering to more people, allow them to say, yes, I, I want to participate, I can participate. So um, I have, well, I was going to go to another question to Ellen, but she jumped in there, which is great. And now we've got 13 minutes for audience Q&A. So I could still do a question for everyone to be sort of weighing in on a tiny bit, but I'd like to invite people, if you've got questions, to start coming up to the mic. Um, I want to talk about value. So you can come up and talk about value, or you can come up and talk about whatever you care to ask. <laughs> but, um, but come on up. But we heard in one of the earlier presentations as well, I think it was the one um, with uh, Nicole from Pfizer, right? And Jean from, from the Prejix Taxi Group. Um, it was funny, you guys gave a dish defin two definitions of value. And um, the one definition was sort of from Jean's side and it was about creating a better world for patients now, but also in the future, but then the other uh, side, and I don't have that note for whatever reason, I don't have that note in front of me, but then there was sort of the industry side of value and that's to have something that is, you know, able to, to help the company keep going, essentially. There's that sort of economic sense of value. So what do you guys think of value? What, what, how should we be thinking of value and coming to some sort of consensus around value? To go back to what Tiffany said, we need to agree on our goal. How do we find alignment under this concept of value? Uh, well, one thing I can talk to from, from experience with this specific trial, the value that, that the industry brought to, to my work and, and to the advocacy side was they listened when I said, and I came in later stage. I mean, this had been going, so if you're feeling like, oh, I didn't engage this you know, very early on, you can still catch up, trust me, trust me. <laughs> Um, my thing was that there was, there was a lack of respect of the blind person, person that is blind, in that community. Um, because, and, it, and it's wonderful, everybody's trying to fix the, the vision uh, of the blind person, but when the message was getting out there, it was blind people need to be fixed. And it was the wrong message, you know, as a mom of two of them, they don't need to be fixed. It would be nice to have a convenience of sight. And, and they really listened to the value in that message change. And it honestly changed the landscape of engagement, of um, collaboration. It was one little, one little moment that was a tipping point, in my opinion, for where things went from there. Because now all of a sudden you had, the, the blind community is a little different. They're siloed all over the place. People that want to be cured, not cured. People that want Braille, not Braille. All these, you know, this or that. And a lot of the groups have now started coming together to say we can all literally be in that sandbox with our own different opinions of what the perfect sandbox and beach looks like. Um, no pun intended, it looks like. But there was a ton of value in that listening and, and in changing the message of what was getting out there. Oh, yay, a question. So, so this is kind of along the value Kind of, I'm trying to stay on theme here, but 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 this has come up a few times, and it's something that I personally know and feel really strongly about. And I think Tiffany, God, God's voice up there, kind of struck it really well. 
there is, there, well, there shouldn't need to be a transactional relationship between pharma and advocacy. But advocates are raising money or advocacy organizations are raising money with a mission to help patients, caregivers, some support research. But in many cases, it's the stuff that they need that isn't being supported elsewhere. And this, while it's really critical in the future, partnering with pharma and being able to provide the patient experience, specifically in diversity, is really resource intensive. I've done it. And it needs to be sustained. Back to Kevin's point, I think the most effective partnership needs to be kind of equal, but there needs to be a way. And I've actually talked to people affiliated with the government because you can't ask for patient-focused drug development and not support it while you're supporting all the research that's kind of happening or taking part around patients. So I, I, I don't know if the group wants to talk about that, but most of us who get involved in this do it because we have time and the resources to dedicate to it. And that leaves a lot of people out. So how do we sustain and support this to make sure everybody's voice is heard? So I think that's a great question. Thank you, Cindy. And, uh, and the answers don't only have to come from the panel, by the way. Anybody has any ideas or comments out there? You know, we're all struggling, I think, with the, with the diversity. Um, with what does diversity mean anyway? Is it, I mean, is it sort of just racial and ethnic diversity? We talk about it as age, age, sex, gender, um, race, but there's really more. There's geography. There are so many layers. There's, there's social, what, what do we call them? Um, social, determinants social determinants of health. Thank you. That was a quiz, by the way, for the psychics. We have a psychic on the panel. Um, but social, the social determinants of health, so income, education level, all of these, all, where do people live? All of these are factors that influence someone's ability to say yes to participating in a clinical trial. Um, so we do have a few more minutes, so it's still time for more questions, but I am going to ask the panel, and maybe I'll start with Tiffany because we haven't heard, unless you'd rather end with God. Should we end with God? <laughs> What's it? <laughs> Tiffany, do you? Okay, well, we got another question, and then we'll go back to, to the round. Uh, yeah. Question for anyone. Hi, this yeah. is Lonnie Hashimoto. Uh, sometimes we learn from your successes, and thank you for sharing some of the things that have worked for you. Sometimes we learn from the failures. Any memorable lessons learned from what hasn't gone well that we can all take away? So I... I, I, earlier I said fail fast, and I think that's because sometimes, um, so I'll speak to uh, the setting where we're talking about a clinical trial. And you might try new and different things uh, to help recruit a clinical trial. Um, and those activities may fail. But that doesn't mean they wouldn't work well in another clinical trial or another setting. And so that goes to my earlier point, which is, if you're really starting early and you really get to know not just the groups but the unmet need and the space and what's important to patients and what's important to the groups and what groups are out there and how are they different, then you can really start um, to build something. But a lot of times what's happened is we're asked to help and right now, yesterday, we need the input. And so I've called it before throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. 
Um, and it's really hard when nothing sticks. So that just takes you back to, you know, it, it was probably the protocol. But so I think failing fast and being able to share those examples um, internally, I don't know that um, we do that enough externally, but doing that uh, more readily internally would, would be uh, something that I would suggest to do. I'm, I shouldn't do this as the moderator, but I am going to weigh in. I think it's just as important to define what constitutes a failure as it is to define what constitutes a success. Seriously, we think about success as did we, did we meet our enrollment targets, right? It's an operational metric, and which, which might not be the advocate's goal. Exactly right. So there's, there's the endpoints and those things that are, and maybe not clinical endpoints, but just the, um, a patient outcome. That, that could be defined as success. So did we have a more satisfied patient? Did we um, make it easier for them to make the decision to participate or not participate? Did we, um, were we able, even if they weren't able to enroll, again, I think it's, it was Mark's slide, even if they weren't able to enroll in a particular study at a particular point in time, you know, a study is so specific, but do we, are we satisfied to lose 65% of those people that consider and don't enroll in a clinical trial that first time? Are we, satis are we satisfied to lose them? Is that, is, that, is that a failure if we don't keep them engaged so that when the study comes around that might be right for them at the time where they're receptive to it, um, they're able to say yes at that point. So we, I think we have to start thinking about failure and success in some broader terms than just operational terms related to clinical trial. Um, but that's my two cents, and now let's hear from you guys. <laughs> um, I have one thing on that. Now, I'm usually like the, the positive patty in the group, right? However, there are times, there, there's, and if we're just going to be specific, and we're all friends here, right? We can talk, whatever. What's, what happens in the ballroom stays in the ballroom, right? <laughs> so in terms of, of things that work and don't work, and fails and not fails, there is a group um, within the rare disease community that people know of that I've had this experience in chatting with. There's one industry group that is, you, you know, my thing is be a giver. Right? I've been giving, 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 hoping that CRB1 would make its way up the food chain, be the next gene people treat. So be a giver. There are, it's the takers that just suck the life out of, out of you. You know what I mean? Like, do everything you can. I guess my point is without pointing fingers and being negative. Be a giver in, in, in as many ways as you can. And I think that was part of the big success with that trial was that that industry was trying to give so much to the community because they were grateful. And, and wanted the participation, wanted to be helpful. And then the takers, it's just, and it, and it turns a lot of people up, and then they, lo and behold, can't get people in their trial. You know what I mean? It's just, it becomes this whole thing. So I guess, you know, the positive Patty says, be a giver, don't be a taker all the time. <laughs> um, I also think that a lot of the, the issues, the challenges around trials is actually in the clinic. Um, and, you know, there's some, a recent, is it a JAMA article, a JOPC article, saying that 75% um, of lack of accrual is due to uh, implementation barriers. Uh, if you've ever sat in a cancer clinic, uh, you know that it's, you know, it's like a tornado. And um, people are anxious to get out of there. They're anxious. I, I'm I worked for a major cancer center in New York City. People were paying $20 an hour for parking. 
don't you know don't ask me to join a trial when when and and you know when the the clock's running um, and my spouse who's with me is diabetic and needs to eat you know there are just these very common sense kind of quality of life issues that um, that people are faced with and if we don't if we don't make a huge effort at the clinic level to show people how they can overcome those barriers we we won't make progress here uh, and frankly you know if the if the treating physician is not the PI on the study there's got to be a huge incentive for them to put the patient on a study and you know n not to say they're not interested not to say that they're not uh, completely committed to getting absolutely the best treatment for the patient I think they are but they have 15 minutes or maybe 30 if it's a first visit there's just not enough time the RSA who's working on the study is in the next room with another patient you need to turn over the room there just aren't enough clinic rooms you've got you know a backlog the the, the timing situation is just horrendous, and we expect all of this to happen in the first two appointments after a patient is diagnosed. It's, you know, it's completely illogical, and, and um, you know, we wonder why. Well, it kind of boils down to, I, in many cases, it boils down to just bare essentials, I think. So thanks. So I'm going to let Tiffany have the last word. Tiffany, you have final thoughts for us? Yeah, make them, I, I make do, them inspirational. And it's, and it's good. I keep it very short here, just as a, just to kind of tie it all in together and to respond to the last question about failure. Um, we, I can tell you at IFAA and our organization, oh my goodness, yes, um, but we don't call it failure. Um, we call it learning. And we're really, if you're willing to take risks and try to identify the gaps and and take engagement to next levels then you've got, you can't be afraid to, to give it a shot. And from those failures um, comes the best innovative solution. So uh, I think if, as we're thinking about all of this together, let's, let's just not be scared of failure. So there you go, voice of God. Don't call it failure, <laughs> call it learning. Go out and fail now. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.